Welcome back to Medic Minutes, the pre-hospital podcast series of the BC Emergency Health Services. I'm Floyd Besser, an emergency physician and critical care paramedic in Prince George. I'm also the local medical consultant for the Northern Interior. I'm here in Vancouver with Oli Olson. Joining us on the line is Jan Trojanowski. Today we're going to discuss spinal motion restriction and the recent changes to the BCHS treatment guidelines. Thanks Floyd. Uh, My name is Ole Olson and I'm a critical care paramedic and paramedic practice leader with BC Emergency Health Services. And um, my portfolio includes areas of care of uh, critical care paramedics, interfacility transfer and all things trauma. I also work uh, mostly in the lower mainland Vancouver coastal and I'm responsible for some areas in the north. Joining us today by phone is Dr. Jan Trojanowski. Uh, Jan is a medical director with BC Emergency Health Services for Vancouver Coastal and emerge physician in Vancouver and an intensivist. Jan, maybe you could go over some of the changes that we've recently made. Thanks for the intro. Uh, Yes, there has been a number of practice changes now within the spinal motion restriction treatment guidelines. And this happened mostly because of the feedback we've gotten from the end users, and that would be the the paramedics, but also the hospitals themselves, from the emergency departments, from the trauma receivings, from the spine surgeons, all had some input uh, after the implementation in 2016. So in 2018, uh, we've been working on adjusting the treatment guidelines to accommodate some of the the changes um, that we've noticed, as well as some of the specific patient populations that need to be addressed. Using the Canadian C-spine criteria is actually somewhat convoluted at times and difficult to remember guideline that we wanted to stick with one guideline. The Nexus um, is typically the, the easiest to use. So let's take a moment just to review what Nexus criteria is. And there are five components to this. And if you can answer no to all five criteria, then SMR is not a warranted Otherwise, you need to suspect a spinal cord injury. So the first criteria is if there is any midline tenderness. So the patient must have no pain on palpation of the cervical spine. Second criteria is any focal or neurological deficits. So the patient must have uh, motor and sensory function intact in all four limbs. The third criteria is, do they have an altered level of consciousness? And in this case, the patient must be alert and oriented to person, place, time, and event. Fourth criteria is, are they intoxicated? Judgment and pain sensation must be intact. And fifth and finally, do they have a major distracting injury? This is defined as a major traumatic injury that would interfere with your ability to assess pain response to palpating their bony spinal column. Thanks, Oli. To summarize... The nexus criteria are applied to adult patients aged 16 to 65, and there are five components as you've listed. For those out there who like mnemonics, one of the most common mnemonics used to remember the nexus criteria is NSAID. That's N-S-A-I-D. If you can answer no to all of the NSAID criteria, then SMR is not warranted. That's no neurologic deficit, no spinal tenderness, no altered level of consciousness, no intoxication, and no distracting injuries. Check out the treatment guideline for details on each one of these criteria. In the new treatment guidelines, I've noticed that the geriatric population is identified as those patients older than age 65. With regards to this patient population, 
what are some of the new considerations that we need to take into account? Patients who are greater than 65 have the potential for significant injuries with relatively minor mechanisms. This can be as a result of fall from a standing height, resulting in blunt trauma above the clavicles. And we've seen this happen a number of times where uh, an elderly patient who has fallen has struck their forehead from a standing height and ended up with a hyperextension injury. And this results in a central cord and then possible paralysis for that patient um, that can be long-lived, unfortunately. The mechanism itself from a standing height would not be considered all that significant, um, but the injuries are. And we've noticed that in the ages above 65, patients are at much higher, much higher risk of having this happen. So we've adjusted the spinal motion guideline to include adult patients from ages of 16 to 65, and for those that have blunt trauma above the level of clavicles. If they're over the age of 65, we can't be using the nexus criteria to rule out a um, possibility of a spinal cord injury, um, be it from a neurologic or um, bony abnormality. So those patients do need to be kept in spinal motion restriction more so than the rest of the population. very challenging to assess and manage kids who've sustained a traumatic injury because for various reasons they can't always communicate their injuries to us. What are some of the new changes with regards to pediatric patients in the update? Well yeah it's it's fairly intuitive. Um, most of us can imagine trying to uh, hold a child down and mobilize them completely could be very challenging. So We've made some slight changes. We know that most children aren't going to fit uh, perfectly into a hard collar and forcibly restraining a patient while we apply a hard collar may be quite difficult. So we're recommending just towel rolls or foam blocks and the head or neck for these patients. And what we have noted specifically are that the only pediatric trauma cases requiring spinal motion restriction are those who have a GCS less than 15 or not alert. Those have, have a neurologic deficit those patients above the age of two who complain of neck pain, um, those presenting with torticollis, as well as multi-trauma and those with a predisposing medical condition, such as um, juvenile arthritis, uh, osteogenesis imperfecta. And those patients with those types of medical conditions um, are at a much higher risk of having a spinal cord um, injury, either from a neurologic or a bony standpoint, um, with relatively minor mechanisms. So if none of those conditions are present, then spinal motion restriction is not indicated, including the hard collars. So just to summarize, pediatric trauma cases requiring spinal motion restriction are those with a GCS less than 15 or not alert, those with neurologic deficits, those that complain of neck pain, specifically in verbal children greater than two years of age, those with torticollis, those having sustained multi-trauma, and those with predisposing medical conditions. If the patient meets these criteria and requires full spinal motion restriction, remember that many children don't fit into or tolerate a hard collar. Do not try to forcibly restrain them or apply a collar. Instead, consider alternatives such as towel rolls or foam blocks around the head and neck. So guys, can you clarify for me some of the considerations for thoracolumbar injuries in the new update? Now we need to remember that Nexus does not address potential thoracic and lumbar spine injuries. It's designed for clearing or addressing the um, cervical spine. And so if the patient 
does fail nexus criteria, then we're meant to maintain complete spinal motion restrictions and not sit the patient up. But if the patient does pass the nexus criteria and doesn't require it from a C-spine standpoint, they may still require some degree of spinal motion restriction um, if we're concerned about a thoracic or lumbar spine injury. So the mechanisms that we're most concerned about with thoracolumbar injuries are those with a dangerous mechanism. So a fall from greater than uh, three meters in height, a significant axial load to the head or base of spine. And you can think about um, uh, spine injuries resulting from uh, diving, for instance, um, or fall from a significant height, um, landing uh, in a axial format right on the, uh, the buttocks, and that can translate with a lot of injuries to um, the thoracolumbar. And even people who uh, fall um, or may jump off buildings and then land on their feet, the transmission of forces in the axial skeleton is quite significant, and they can end up with those TNL injuries. And then there are the patients with um, high-speed motor vehicle collisions greater than 100 kilometers per hour and rollover motor vehicle collisions. And those are significant mechanisms for having a thoracolumbar injury. And then those other patients as well having pre-existing spinal pathology. Or on the exam, when you're doing a log roll with the patient or examining the patient's back, they may have a new deformity, bruising, or bony middle and tenderness on log roll. So those patients should still be maintaining spinal motion restriction, should not be sat up within the, uh, the stretchers and be transported to a hospital in the most comfortable fashion possible for them. There is some concern that the, uh, the striker powered stretchers, when we do bend them or we do set the patients up, it's, they're not really uh, flexing at the patient's hips. They may be actually flexing the low lumbar injury area. So it's basically, again, with those patients with thoracolumbar injuries, if we are now bending them at that uh, low lumbar area, um, we may actually be patient that patient at, placing that patient at risk. So just to summarize, Jan, with patients who pass the nexus criteria, but has any of the following findings, it's recommended that we do not sit the patient up or raise the head of the stretcher on the assumption that thoracolumbar injuries may be present. Number one, physical examination reveals a spine deformity, bruising, or bony midline tenderness on log roll. Number two, history reveals that there's pre-existing spinal pathology. Number three, there's a dangerous mechanism of injury, including either fall from height greater than three meters, axial loading to the head or base of spine, high-speed motor vehicle collision, or rollover motor vehicle collision. If any one of these is present, assume that a thoracolumbar injury may exist. Thanks, Floyd. I thought maybe this would be an opportunity for us to talk a little bit more about the clamshell stretcher and leaving the hard clamshell underneath the patients when we're transporting them. And maybe you can speak to some of the challenges of that. Sure, Oli. Coincidentally, the National Association of EMS Physicians released a joint consensus statement on SMR in August of this year. It was developed from collective positions on SMR from the American College of Surgeons Committee on Trauma, the American College of Emergency Physicians, and the National Association of EMS Physicians. In the statement, they highlight 10 key points of consensus. We won't go through all of the 10 points today, but we will add a link to this document in the show notes for listeners to access. One of the relevant points brought up in the consensus statement that you mentioned, Oli, is that once a patient is safely positioned on an ambulance cot, transfer or extrication devices should be removed. It's been well documented in the literature that there could be significant complications from leaving a patient on a spine board or clamshell. Circumstances where it may be better to leave the patient on the extrication device may include 
a lack of adequate personnel to safely perform the transfer, a requirement for the immediate management of life-threatening injuries, such as airway or CPR, or if the immediate transport to hospital is required with a very short transport time, i.e. less than 10 to 15 minutes. So, Floyd, um, I thought maybe we could take a moment to talk about the importance of documentation with these patients. Yeah, well, definitely documentation is key. I recently sat in on a session about the new SIREN EPCR system, which, as we all know, was initially implemented back in 2016, and we're now in the final phases of uh, the provincial rollout. It's well known that whether written or electronic, patient records are central to patient care and safety. They allow us to communicate within the circle of care when verbal communication isn't possible, and it guards against the fallibility of memory. In the emergency department, when a patient is brought in by EMS, I refer to the PCR almost 100% of the time as a means of collateral history. This may be for simple things like allergies, medications, what the initial complaint was, and what the mechanism was. Oftentimes I get verbal handover and I'm able to discuss the case with the paramedic, but even in that, I don't always recall the details. So that document or chart is crucial to me reviewing that information. The Canadian Medical Protective Association outlines some good practices for documentation. Some of the highlight features out of this document include, one, to take care to document every patient encounter, irregardless of how brief the encounter was. This is to ensure that both the provider and the patient have a record of contact. The second is to include all relevant information. In relation to SMR, relevant information that should be charted includes mechanism of injury, extrication history, and timing of SMR application. Finally, make sure you indicate your reasoning and intentions. Again, specific to SMR, the indications for why a patient is or is not placed in spinal motion restriction should definitely be clearly documented. I want to thank Oli and Jan very much for taking time out of their busy schedules to join us today. For listeners who may have questions for either of these gentlemen, you can take a look at the show notes for their contact information. The show notes will also include a brief summary of the discussion we had today, as well as links to the various resources that we highlighted. As always, refer back to the treatment guidelines for any recent changes or updates. We're always looking for ways to improve this podcast initiative, so please let us know if you have any suggestions by sending an email to the address provided in the show notes. Be safe and stay tuned for more episodes of Medic Minutes.